that we're dealing with, where Paul talks about, uh, you know, some, one, one person values one day above others, another person values them all the same, let each person be convinced in his own mind. And then from Colossians, and we'll get to some of these texts, but where, you know, Paul says these issues of eating and drinking and feast days and Sabbaths um, are, are all something of, uh, they use the word soikeia, of the elemental spirits of the world. It's something of, of the way God's made the world, the work that Christ has actually come to redeem and pull us out of and move us beyond and so on. So people oftentimes think of the Sabbath as just simply that, right? It's just part of this uh, old order, and mostly an old order that's the Jewish order, right, that we see revealed in the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, in, under the New Covenant, that is, we don't need to be concerned with that anymore. Um, or others that say, and this is kind of something I noticed uh, here, it can get a lot, that Jesus is our Sabbath, and therefore the Sabbath uh, isn't a consideration for us anymore because Jesus is that and has fulfilled it, right? And I think that, anyway, those things kind of come together and make me think, well, it's, it's probably worth taking some time as we, uh, I had planned maybe just to do a, sa- a Sabbath sermon today, but instead I'm going to do an education hour uh, short series on, on Sabbath rather than trying to fit into a, into a sermon, though sometimes a sermon is a good deal too because you get the fuller body of believers coming around to, he- to hear the word that way. But to begin with, I wanted to at least give a quick thumbnail of, of the Sabbath in my life, how God's kind of uh, worked on me through the years with, with Sabbath and how it's happened. So just a few minutes on that, I think it would be helpful kind of to, to run into this. So as I grew up, um, I grew up in my home with my family, and my parents took us to at least initially a Dutch Reformed church, the Christian Reformed church, um, which is a stellar Dutch church for many, 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 well, many decades, until maybe in the 1980s it started to get goofy, kind of in the same way as the Presbyterians got goofy back in the, uh, back in the 30s. Right, which which precipitated the breaking up of the of the main line, the one Presbyterian denomination in the United States, into kind of splinter groups like the Bible Presbyterian Church and the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, and so on. Well, similar things happened in the Dutch Reformed Church in America, just you know, 50, 60 years later. Right, they had a longer hang time here in America, and part of that is because they're a little more reclusive. They kind of did their own thing, where Presbyterians are a little more uh, historically a little more, a little more urbane and connected, but all that to say, in my background, uh, we, I, I can tell you I missed the Lord's Day worship, um, like I probably count on one hand, in many times that I wasn't at church as a kid. We were always there. I was always there. And uh, there's, there are other things to talk about with that. But the way my parents dealt with it, especially when they got to working age, uh, was, you know, I, I, I start going to work at Taco Time. And they, uh, they want me to work shifts on Sunday. And my, mom's, my mom, who was with me at the time, says, well, you know, he can work in the afternoon or evening, but he's not going to work during worship hours. You know, that's, we, we worship. And so that, that was fine. And talk with time was okay with that. And so was I, I guess. And, um, and I'll, I'll play with it. So then, to wrap it around, we get to, I get to college up in Bellingham. And the church that I ended up becoming a member at is a Dutch Reformed church called this time a splinter off of the CRC called the Orthodox Christian Reformed Church, OCRC. And, um, and we learned, at, and that was out in Linden, by the way. So Linden's about 25 minutes from Bellingham, so we had a little bit of a drive out there. And Linden is a Dutch community. It's a Dutch town, and it closes on Sunday. The town closes, right? Uh, I remember a professor at Western up there in Bellingham saying, where do you go for a beer in Linden on Sunday? Somewhere else. 
You're not getting it. Uh, the bars aren't open. The, and, and actually, they finally had an agreement with, things, I think, Safeway or something, where they were able to keep the store open on Sunday within city limits, and that was a big deal, right? Uh, the whole town shut down on Sunday. And the, the reader boards say, you're worshiping with family and, and brothers in Christ, or something, you know, it's, kind of, it's, it's that kind of place. Um, so that's one thing, is like the kind of the, uh, the, the setting in which this occurred, but really where it occurred is in the church, and in the families of the church, because we'd walk in, we were the college kids, uh, we'd walk in and, and we'd get two, three, four invitations over for lunch every time. You couldn't take three steps in the door and so say, hey, come on over to a place for lunch. They always call it dinner. Everything's dinner. They'd say, come on over for dinner um, after church. And, and we often would, right? So the college kids would go over and, and have lunch. And then uh, oftentimes we'd go back to Bellingham. And I remember the, the elders coming up to us, or at least to me, um, and saying, well, why don't you come back for the evening service? Because they had a morning service and evening service, uh, like Dutch Reform always do. And anyway, I'd, I said a few things. And really the issue was because we were going back and just kind of play, playing around, you know, just messing around, watching movies or whatever, or trying to do our schoolwork, trying to get stuff done. And um, anyway, the, the elders said, don't do that. Come on back. We're open for worship. Come on back and, and join. Or better, stay out here. If, if you're staying at someone's house, just hang out for the whole afternoon and you know, and then just come back to worship before you go up to Bellingham. And anyway, the short version of this is that they taught us, they taught me for sure, but I think Miley and, and our friends as well, they taught us how to stop working and just enjoy Christian fellowship for the day. Right? And, and it became such a sweet thing. It was like the best day of the week, bar none. It was so great to have the day off, not to worry about school, not to worry about that stuff, just to worship the Lord, to enjoy wonderful fellowship, good food, good drink, and, you know, worship in morning and evening. And that's, that was kind of our, I think, cutting our teeth, really, uh, as far as real Sabbath keeping. Um, and, and that had to do with, again, the cessation of certain kinds of work. That's what Sabbath means, is ceasing the certain kinds of work. But, but doing other kinds of work on that day, right, on, on, uh, on the first day of the week, on the Lord's Day. So that kind of propelled me into that in my adult life and out of college. And I would think, if nothing else that we learn, if we really focus in on the Sabbath and what it means, is that God wants us to organize our lives, and he wants us to prioritize the right things at the right time. That's what he's teaching us in the Sabbath. That's like the the major lesson is organize your life such that the ordinary work you do, you don't do it on this day. You do it on the other days. Well, you've got to plan to do that, right? You've got to think about what tasks are coming and, and move them off of that day. And we, we, we do that, right? So if we have like a vacation, you think, oh, I've got to get this figured out. I've got to plan ahead of time so that this is taken care of and that's taken care of. Think of the Putnams, who, you know, Ray's got like this whole list of things, all these things he needs taken care of. He's got it all set up and he's got people to do it. And right, he's thought through all that because he wanted to leave. Right? He wanted to make the time to do something else. The Sabbath is very much like that. Right? You have this day that you are going to prioritize things differently that day. And to do that, you have to organize moving things out of that day and putting them somewhere else. And it's a real struggle personally, but it's a bigger struggle relationally. It's a bigger struggle when you get in finally you know, end up walking horns with people and plans on, on Sunday and what you're doing there. And um, just one little example, and then we'll move to the notes. But our, when we got married... Uh, wonderful day. It was supposed to be the next day. Our initial plan was to get married on Sunday, and um, I don't quite know how that, anyway, and, and kind of amazingly, and my mom thought it was just audacious, the pastor said, well, I'm happy to marry on Sunday, that's great, but 
we're not going to go to the um, reception afterwards at this place because it's just making a bunch of people work on the Lord's Day. We're not going to do, we'll, we'll, we'll celebrate the wedding with you and, and do that, but we're not going to go to the reception afterwards. And so I got in touch with Miley and her mom, who was planning all this over in Hawaii, quite apart from me, and said, I kind of got a problem here. And so they looked around and found that we could do it the day before on Saturday, right? Um, and that, I don't know, I don't know what you think of that. I think it is kind of audacious. Uh, but at the same time, it's a pastor being a pastor and saying, well, this is what I got to do. And I'm happy you're doing this thing, but I can't do it with you. Well, that makes them static, right? Has the potential to make problems. I think the Sabbath is like that. All, all God's commandments and all God's ways are like that in some way or another. But how we use our time and what we do with it um, is personal and important to each of us. And Sabbath touches us there. So if that's just kind of a little thumbnail, maybe, um, of, of some things I've learned from the Sabbath along the way um, in, trying to, in trying to be faithful in keeping the Sabbath. And what that looks like as a New Covenant Christian, not as an Old Covenant Jew, and even less than that as one wandering in the wilderness, okay, uh, where the Sabbath really comes to touch down. So, more on that as we go. What I want to do this morning is take 20 minutes or 25 minutes and show you that the Sabbath is one of those theological realities in the Bible, like one of the things, a theme, that that you can use to encapsulate the entirety of redemptive history. All of it. Right? It's like that. I, I tried to preach a sermon a few weeks ago on eating meat and how you can encapsulate all of kind of God's redemptive work in eating meat and how that, that kind of shows this process. Sabbath is like that too. And even more so, I think. Uh, because it's, it really is more central to the Old Testament and, um, and kind of just like a number of things sneaks into the New Testament where you kind of don't expect it or you can't see it. Right? A, you notice the Old Testament is much bigger. It deals with a wide range of things that the New Testament does not. Um, and so a lot of things kind of come through, and other things are discontinued, and we need to kind of figure out what's what there. And again, I think it's right to say let everyone be convinced in his own mind. Think about this stuff and figure it out, but my guess is this. Very few of us have thought much about Sabbath. Very few of us have thought through and read through and tried to pull all the biblical data together to see how really encompassing this commandment and the concept of Sabbath is not just the commandment, but the Sabbath itself. So I want to start at the beginning and show you that the beginning suggests the end. Okay? The, in Sabbath, from the beginning, we have a culmination in view. Right? We have the, the God's redemptive culmination in view. So let's turn to Genesis 2. And while I'm turning to Genesis 2, I'll ask, are there any just kind of questions or thoughts initially? It'll be answered later. The answer to any question you have right now is it's going to get answered later. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't one point of interest in that, that's interesting, um, on, the, on the Dutch reform side, we have the Psalter hymnal. That's the Christian reform hymnal like our trinity. Um, and it has a number of liturgical forms in the back from the Lord's Supper to baptism, things like that. One of them is the solemnization of marriage in the worship service. Very interesting. Especially with reform, with a regular principle kind of thing. It's like, well, do people get married in worship? No. <laughs> well, I think there's a party. Well, you even think of Jesus at the party. You've know, got days of a party on a wedding, right? Um, so, yeah. But anyway, it's, it's interesting how we deal with that on the Lord's Day, and particularly in worship for Reformed folks. That was a weird one for me. Um, in fact, the week before we got married, friends of ours from college got married, same pastor, Pastor Camrig, and they did it in the worship service. 
the, the solemnization, and then they just kind of had a little party afterwards at the church, and that was their wedding. Um, not out and about, just kind of we're here. Yeah, bring the family and her church is there, and then we're going to celebrate this wedding, which you know kind of recommends itself in certain ways. Yeah. I would, I would argue that that marriage is the act that takes place during the wedding ceremony is a form of worship. Sure. So the, in, uh, I think I'll, grab, I'll, I'll go with that. I think the regular principle issue, though, if you're kind of thinking of it as far as like, what does the Bible say to put in worship, and that's what we got to do. Well, getting married is not one of those things. That's that's kind of my weird kind of mis, you know misgiving on that. But that's neither here nor there. Um, Genesis two is though. Let's look at it. So we uh, we have the six days of creation, right? God creates everything in six days. And um, we're, we're already mouth-breathing rubes and idiots for believing that. Okay, so just put that down to begin with. If you actually believe what's said here and think this is what God did, he kind of told us how he did it in these six days, and it wasn't all that long ago that he did it, you can just, you know, you might as well whatever, wear, be wearing a clown suit as far as uh, most people think. But there we are. So I'm happy to say it and believe it and, and, and defend it. But we get to the seventh day, and it's the weirdest of all of them. Okay, it's weird that God creates in six days, and there's evening, and there's morning, day one. And there's evening, and there's morning, day two. Okay, we got this thing going. Then we get to the seventh day, and it's a different kind of day. Um, So let's just read the first three verses. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now let me read that again, because it's nice and short. And notice how repetitive it is. There's, there's a lot of repetition going on in this fairly short passage. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from uh, all his work that he had done in creation. Okay, so the first thing that I think stands out, which is weird, is God resting. Okay, that should be the first thing that's, that's, that seems strange. And, you know, if you've read the Bible and kind of know, you know, the keeper of Israel neither sleeps nor slumbers. Uh, you know, other gods may sleep and slumber or be in the toilet or something else and indisposed, but not Yahweh, right? He, that's, he's the eternal, and he's the unchanging. Uh, he's the one, as, as theologians come to say, is always inact, right? There's no potentiality in God at all. He's always doing what God does and so on. And here yet we have an image of him resting. Right? All, all the work that he'd done, and then he rests on this seventh day. That's worth rolling around in your head for a bit. Why, why has God revealed this, and why did he do this? Right? Why, did he, why did he do this in this week of creation? He's got everything made, and the heavens and the earth, the hosts of them, uh, which interestingly the Septuagint translates as cosmos, uh, host. Anyway, that's just an interesting thing I found that... Uh, the order of them, even. Anyway, so God's got this whole thing framed, and you notice at the end, it's in creation, right? His work of creation is what's being focused on, and it's done. He completed it in six days and finished it up, and then here we have the seventh day. Everything's finished, and on the seventh day, God finished his work, and he rested. Okay. Now, you have a thought? You're saying it's probably not because he got wore out. Right. He ain't talking about, um, that's not the issue. 
Um, and as we, as we, I think as we explore it later, especially like the commandment and so on, we, we see a little more into it. But even from this point, it's like, okay, well, the work of creation is done. The work of providence now continues, right? Because that's what creation and providence are. All, they're always linked like that. Creation is the beginning of the thing. Providence is the governing and continuance of it. Right? Uh, so Jesus says, a little later on, he says, my father's been working until now, and I've been working. And they pick up stones to murder him, right? Because he's making himself God. Um, but he says, God's been working, right? God's in act. So this rest that God has isn't really a cessation of his own work altogether, but it is a cessation of his work of creation. Creation's done. This has been established in six days. Now we rest from that work while, crea- while continuing in this other work of, of providence and so on. Um, so it's not because God's tired. You might go ahead and think that it's for us. The reason God did this, and the reason God said that he did it, right? those are two different things. God does stuff he doesn't tell us about. Okay? Um, but the reason God did it, he actually rested from his work of creation, and he told us about it, was for us. And if you can remember anything from all of this, remember Jesus' words that, it wasn't the Sabbath that was created for man, right? It wasn't man that was created for the Sabbath. Man's not to serve the Sabbath. The Sabbath is to serve man. In other words, God's giving a gift here, all the way from the beginning, a gift of rest. And there's a promise in it, too. There's a hope in it, and more we'll explore, but it's for us. God rested and showed us he rested for us. It's for us to follow. And we see it's a pattern that works all sorts of directions in the Bible. Not just a weekly Sabbath, but it works all sorts of directions. It's for us. Go ahead. So I, I haven't delved deep into this thought or concept. I have once heard it said that um, this act of rest that God takes was much like well, just kind of taking a step back and enjoying what he's done. Right? Yeah. Like if we built something, how we would step back and go, Sure. And I think there's a little bit of that, especially in the commandment as we we'll look at. But yeah, that, um, and, and again, uh, it's, 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 a, it's a bit anthropomorphic in, in the form of man, right? Because, you know, does, does God increase his pleasure by noticing what he's done? So like, God's, God's pleased this level, and then he made creation. He's like, no, a little more, a little happier now. No, it doesn't really help, right? I mean, it's still, it's still after our own image, but that's how God's revealing it. It's for us. It's for us. And we're supposed to take note of what he's doing and say, oh, that's kind of what we're supposed to be doing as well. Right? I think that's the connection there. Because if we're looking for this in God, how does this serve God within himself? It's like, well, it doesn't. It serves God by revealing to us what he's done and what he's doing and what he will do. So all that's kind of built in there. I thought I saw a hand. Go ahead. So there's, there's a definitely a discipline in this thing um, that when we engage that, we find pays major dividends. Yeah, yeah. Good. yeah I think about it from like, at a major perspective, right? I and mean, this is day one for them, right? Yeah, right. It's like, so God must have told them, right? Okay, we're going to rest on this day and then you have your 
Yeah, then you get to work out there. Yeah, or something. I mean, I don't know if they named the animals or not. I mean, he had to because Eve wasn't created yet. So, I mean, he did have a big day. But, <laughs> but it's just, I always think about it from his perspective. He's like, just created and now we're going to rest. Yeah, that's, that's of interest. But it might be kind of tight with what he's saying is so that God could look at everything they did. Yeah, in fact, check some of these animals out. Say it'll help you out. Yeah, so uh, Adam's experience in this is to be created um, and then... And the, the first full day he has is Sabbath, right? a day to rest. So that's, that's helpful, and I'll think a little bit more about that. Um, but we're not going to make any headway unless we move here. So let's do that. Um, so we have the example of God that's for us. Okay, let's just put that down. We can figure out how it's for us. We can figure out how it's for us now versus how it was for Israel before the coming of Christ versus how it was for Israel before even the giving of the law and so on. Right. So there's all of that. Now, God did two things with the day. He blessed the seventh day, it says there. So you can see in verse 3, so God blessed the seventh day. Okay, so whatever the seventh day is here, which is the, which is the Sabbath, his day of rest, uh, it's a blessed day. It's a day that God has said, this day is going to have more of his fullness, is going to have more of something of his blessing in it than other days. He blessed it. And he blessed it from the beginning, the very beginning. And secondly, along the same lines, he hallowed it. We get that in the, uh, in the commandment as we read it. And it, the commandment ends that way. So therefore, God blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. And, uh, of course, hallowing is uh, a making holy. Making holy is a setting apart. It's a different day. It's a different kind of day. To the point of this, not from the beginning, from creation, from the very beginning, not every day has been the same. Okay? Not every day is the same. It's always been that way. Now, how we reckon that, how we do it, and then there's, there's some freedom for us in the New Covenant, I think, more than they had in the Old. But we still should recognize not every day is the same. Not every day is the same, and it, it hasn't been from the beginning of, of creation. One day is blessed. One day God has put his blessing upon and separated out from the other days and said, this is a special day. Okay, the Sabbath day is a special day because God rested from all his work of creation on that day. Okay, that's, we get that right from the beginning here, Genesis. That's not from the law in Exodus, and it's not from the law in Deuteronomy. Right? Those are going to go in line with this and, and teach us more. But we have this blessed hallowed seventh day. And then this last comment here, letter E. The seventh day is an open day. What do, we mean by, what do we mean by that? All the other days are closed. Evening, morning, day one. Evening, morning, day two. Evening, morning, day six. Where's the evening and morning of day seven here? Where's the end of it? It's not, there's no end recorded here, right? It's an open day. That's suggestive and particularly important. Right? That's, that's going to be picked up by the New Testament writers, especially the book of Hebrews, as we'll see in a moment, uh, quite heavily. They say, well, this, this day of rest is this ongoing reality that we've dealt with all the way through Israel's history and still. And yet we're looking forward to this rest. This, this day of rest is an open day. So not like the other six, evening, morning, and numbered, suggests uh, a more fulsome rest yet to come. Right? This rest is something God's going to be giving and doing. And it's, it's a... Um, we might even say it's an ongoing work of God. He is work of creation, but his work of redemption is going to be captured in this Sabbath idea, in the rest of the Sabbath. Okay? So it makes the seventh day different all the way from the beginning. 
Right? It's a blessed day. Uh, it's it's a, a holy day. It's a hallowed day, set apart from the other days. Because on it, God finished all the work he did in creation, and here suggesting the work he's going to do in redemption in this rest of the seventh day. That extends. Any, any thoughts just on that? Just, and all this kind of right from just the text here in in Genesis 2, right? That's without, and there's lots and lots and lots of text more that have to do with these things. But Yes? You said, interesting, earlier you said that Sabbath means ceasing. And so for God in this passage that is an ongoing Sabbath or whatever, he ceased from creation. Like the Sabbath that we are talking about for ourselves or for the land or whatever, they rest and then they restart what they stopped doing. Yeah, right. Like on Monday or whatever. <laughs> Yeah, and I think you're you're onto that. And Hebrews four in particular kind of picks up this kind of weird time thing where we're resting in Christ. Yeah, we're going to rest in Christ, and right, it has this kind of now and not yet sort of thing going on with the rest. Um, but your interesting your point is interesting that the the rest that we have on the calendar here are all starting work afterwards. You have rest, and then a ceasing of work, and then a starting of it again, um, where the one who rests in Christ rests from all his works. Hebrews says, we'll get there in a moment. It's like, oh, there's a definitive resting here in Christ that's different from this one where we pick back up our work. So that's an interesting comment, and I'll try to work on it more. They see the answer? Do you have something? I saw a hand over there. Okay, so that's, that's just the beginning, right? And I think, again, the beginning suggests the end. Just like in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, it suggests that in the end, the heavens and the earth are going to do something that's going to get wrapped up somehow, right? So the beginning suggests the end, and in this case, even more so, because the Sabbath itself is this, again, open-ended day of blessing and set apart, uh, suggesting more to come this, of this rest in the seventh day. I'd read Psalm 95. You might just flip there. It's worth reading. Because we read it as a call to worship quite often, but we don't ever read the whole thing that way. So it makes it, makes it a good deal more interesting if we did. So Psalm 95, we'll just read it. We don't need to speed on through this here. Okay, we have this glorious call to worship. Well, come, let us sing to Yahweh. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For Yahweh is a great God and the great king above all gods. You've heard that plenty. We do that as a call to worship often. Okay, in his hands are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Okay, there's your creation there. Uh, and ownership from it. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before Yahweh, our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah on the day of Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test. To, uh, uh, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work for forty years, I loathed that generation and said, "They are a people who go astray in their heart." As they and they have not known my ways, therefore I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. Okay, so we have this psalm. Again, it's kind of a weird one in the sense that it has these great like calls to worship, and then this this kind of called like a gut shot. Today, if you hear His voice, don't harden your hearts like our fathers did in the wilderness. And God was you know, displeased. We say in the text here, God loathed that generation. 
Right, so what are we talking about? What's the generation we're talking about here? The Exodus, right? So that's it. So that God, and, and he says, they've seen all my works, right? Did anybody not notice the works of Yahweh on the way out of, out of Egypt? No, they saw God's saving power all the way to the pit into the Red Sea or Sea of Reef. Uh, and finally, you know, God gives this amazing, uh, miraculous through the water, you know, and then they sing the songs on the other side, and then they get angry because they don't have leeks and turnips and, and onions and whatnot like they did back in Egypt when they were slaves. Right, so we can see in them their fickleness and their foolishness, just like you can see it in your own heart. Um, but God, God dealt with that generation. He dealt with that generation rather harshly. Right? He scattered their bodies in the wilderness until the next generation should come. And they entered into the rest of the promised land. But we see that, and again, we'll move on with, if we ever get there, we'll get there next week, uh, with Hebrews chapter 4, that if Joshua had given them rest... Right? then David wouldn't have written this. The psalmist wouldn't have written this. Because if Joshua gave them rest going into the promised land, then what's the psalmist have to do saying there's a day of rest yet? Right? That's, that's how the author of Hebrews develops this thing. Said, no, this, this day of rest is persistent through all of redemptive history. From the very beginning, as the world's made, through Israel's law and everything else, and there's a ton of that, all the way here to finally a call to repentance. Right? Say, don't be like that generation that tested God. That didn't believe him. They didn't, and as the author of Hebrews says, didn't hear the message of the gospel with faith. They had the same message we've had, but they didn't have faith. They didn't believe. And therefore, they didn't enter into the rest of God. But we need to press into that rest. And it's a forward-looking rest. It's our hope. Right? So, I guess what I'm trying to get across with this particular education, I'll message half of it, is that we don't get to dismiss Sabbath with the wave of a hand and say, oh, Jesus is my Sabbath. Done. No, it's not that simple. Okay? Jesus is your Sabbath. And we will get into Hebrews 4 next week or one after Lord one. But that doesn't mean it's over. <laughs> it doesn't mean there's nothing there for us or no meaning or no practice for us. Okay? Just because Jesus is our righteousness, is he not? Is that not our doctrine of justification? the standing and falling of the church doctrine and all that, he is our righteousness, imputed to us. Does that mean, therefore, we have no need for righteousness? Personally, live like hell. Jesus is your righteousness. Is that the doctrine? Of course not. Right? Now, I understand that righteous life and Sabbath aren't exactly the same thing. Right? The Sabbath is specific, and the righteous life of a believer is everywhere addressed. Right? So they're not the same thing, but the, the argument is the same. Jesus is my this, therefore I don't need this. Jesus is my Sabbath, therefore Sabbath's not for me to worry about. No, it's not that simple. It can't be that simple. Because you'll see this is a very meaningful doctrine and practice throughout the whole of Scripture that gives us a great deal, including past the incarnation and the resurrection and ascension of Christ. We're still in the midst of waiting for rest pressing into it, knowing that Christ is our rest, yet still pressing forward in hope. Right? So this resting, the ceasing, the Sabbath doctrine really is quite encompassing, spreading through the whole Bible, and I think all of redemptive history, from the beginning of creation all the way to the culmination of the recreation, Sabbath is part of it. Rest is part of it. In fact, it's a central part of it. So if, just to dismiss it out of hand, or just with the wave of the hand, I think is foolish, and there's a lot more here for us to, to glean, even if we come down at maybe different points as far as how we practice Sabbath or what we, what we think we're supposed to be doing currently as far as our calendars and our time. 
Let me say one more thing that I think is super interesting, and that will probably open up questions. So our beloved little trollish looking guy, Dennis Turry, uh, I think he looks, like he looks like something, I don't know what. Um, but anyway, his, um, he was the pastor there at RC, Reformation Covenant Church, for 30 some odd years. And um, I remember him saying, he told me this, so I don't know how he told people when they talked to him, but how he told me was interesting. Uh, one, their covenant to join the church included a number of things. Uh, one of them was to do no business on the Lord's Day. That was part of joining the church. You're joining the church and telling everyone, I'm not going to conduct business. I'm not going to go out to lunch. I'm not going to, we're, we're going to Sabbath. The, the congregation's going to Sabbath. And they did well. They still do well as far as that goes. They got, anyway, they know how to celebrate. They know how to feast because they're practiced doing it because they practiced doing it. Um, more on that later. But, you know, if you can imagine thinking about, you know, joining a church and they say, well, that's fine to be a member of this church. You have to basically comply with this Sabbath regulation on the Lord's Day. And he says, well, some people would come back and say, well, you're trying to bind my conscience. I don't believe that. You're trying to bind my conscience. His response to me, to them, was, I'm not trying to bind your conscience. I'm trying to bind your practice. That's a different thing. I want you to practice things. And and, and I'm not trying to convince you this is right. The practicing itself will convince you this is right, which is kind of how Sabbath goes, which is kind of how obedience goes anyway. Isn't it? Isn't obedience the great teacher? When it comes down to it, when we learn to obey, oh, I see now. Oh, I get it now. Oh, that's how that goes together. I couldn't see it before. I know because you're disobedient. Right? Obedience is a great teacher in all areas of the Christian life. And I think Sabbath is one of them as well, where we learn to obey it better by step by step, here a little, there a little, and we'll see God bless it because it is a blessed day from the beginning. It's a holy day. It's a day on which God ceased all his work of creation. And opens up the door to this great, eternal rest, Sabbath that we have in Jesus Christ. What a blessing. And I hope we'll continue it together and, and learn and grow as we do it. So let's, uh, let's close in prayer.